So, uh, good afternoon, everybody. I think what I'm going to do, what we'll do first of all, we'll just introduce, um, I'll allow everyone to introduce themselves, because I think that's the best way. So, uh, on my left. Uh, my name is Michael Wilson. I'm the co-producer on Outlander. Uh, Nick Hextel-Smith, one of the assistant directors. Uh, Stuart Brace, the set decorator. Gary Steele, production designer. Anne McEwan, makeup and hair designer. Um, Ali Walker, one of the directors of photography. Nina Ayres, costume designer. Good. So what I think we'll do, look, let's just let's have a look at just the trailer for season three, uh, just to remind ourselves of the world we're in, and then we can kick off into questions. Okay. I think one of the things that this this um, this trailer doesn't show us is that actually the season ended up in in uh, us the production being in Cape Town for for five of the episodes, and I think that just shows in terms of especially with Outlander and a lot of these now high end TV shows that. It is, it is much more of a, a much broader spectrum. It's a much broader production palette that we have to work with now and that we're tasked with. With Jamie and Claire and the, and the story of Outlander, it goes in many more different places. So this year, not that we're, we're going to go into season four, but this year we're in North America. So we, we actually do have a, a, a huge reach when you think from the 1940s right the way through to uh, Battle of Culloden, then we were in Paris in season two, and then in season three, we end up in the Caribbean with a lot of sailing stuff, a lot of stuff on ships, uh, everything from voodoo dances to, to all those, that aspect of the production. So it is now a much more, as I say, it's a much bigger palette, okay? So I think one way of maybe kicking off with this reluctant group here, I can't even see a hand up yet, is what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll I can think what we'll do is let's dig in a little bit. Oh, great. Thank you very much. My question is, um, what do you do if when you're watching the dailies, you realize that something's gone totally wrong and your days are totally fully planned as far as I know, with, with, as far as I've heard, I mean, I don't know anything about filming. So you, you, you have... Something else that, you, that is scripted to be filmed the next day, but things have gone wrong. How do you do? The, how do you correct that? What, what do you do? Um, I'm going I'm to pass that on, question on, just because I think <laughs> it's good to open it up to everybody else. But I think just just to say, yes, things are absolutely planned to the minutiae, and they're constantly upgrade, updated. But I'll let I'll let Michael. Michael handled that one in terms of how we respond to that. Uh, David, David picks me because we've been doing a lot of that recently, which is reshooting uh, pickups, inserts. What we find generally is by halfway through the shoot, we'll start getting notes back from the edit saying, you know, this shot isn't working for one reason or another, or this story beat isn't working, you're going to have to tell the story in another way. Uh, so it's a big part. We're, we're lucky we have the capacity that we're actually shooting for nine months. Uh, and, and during that period, it's usually about halfway through, we'll start getting these notes in and then we'll do second units uh, or we'll throw stuff to the main unit and ask them to pick up shots. Uh, and yeah, I mean, we're still rewriting scripts in the edit. Pages are coming through, uh, finding ways to tell the story or to accentuate the story or to make it better. Uh, it's a, a fairly common part of what we do. What does the second unit do? Uh, a second unit, we, we have our main unit crew uh, who are shooting all the time and they're getting the scripts in and, and shooting the story as it comes in. Second unit is essentially the main unit have got their designated number of days to try and deliver the, the 13 or the 16 episodes. Uh, our second unit crew will be smaller. They'll come in and they'll pick up these odds and sods, these little uh, inserts or reshoot scenes that come out of the edit. 
So, in actual fact, on basically the second unit, because it is quite interesting and integral to what we do, what I'm going to do is let's show the ADs and productions clip now. And then, because what I'd like to do is this is a sequence which is both, you know, it, 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 it happens very quickly, but I'd like us to talk a little bit about what's involved with putting a sequence like that together. And this is, this is from the, the, the opening episode of, of the third season. Uh, so let's just run that whenever you're ready. What I'm going to do with that is I'm going to pull the rest of the team into that, just in a way, if you don't mind, just indulging that a little bit about what it takes to put that sequence together, because there is a lot of second unit in there. I mean, Nick, in terms of as sort of our, our, one of our key first assistants, you know, was, is obviously instrumental in breaking that down. So I'm going to ask Nick about the process of going from the page of Culloden a little bit onto what the screen involves with that, you know, if I may. Yeah, so, I, I mean, it, it obviously starts with the script. And uh, myself, director, DOP Ali, um, an art department and stunt coordinator, will start breaking it down into its various elements. And from that, um, we can then start deciding what, what main units shoot, which is principally involved, uh, involving actors. That's our job, is to get the actors shot, and setting the scene, and setting the tone of the, of the battle. And then we can start allocating other stuff to second unit, but we, one, don't want time, want to take time doing and don't have the time to, to do, and we can pass that over um, and say, right, we, you don't need the actors, you can take a bunch of stuntmen, a bunch of horses, and you go off and do that for X amount of days. Obviously, we, we, we have a limited amount of days to shoot our material, so uh, we, we have to just break that down very carefully and go, okay, you know, over these five days, this is, this is what we can achieve. Um, so from the script to finding the location and just basically working through it. Um, a, a key aspect would be storyboards, which we always do for sequences like this. The director and, uh, and uh, with, with whoever else he wants to get involved will sit down with a storyboard artist and basically draw out frame by frame what he wants to see um, in the final thing. And what we storyboarded for this is pretty much what, what ended up on the screen. And, you know, it, it, it also means you can work out from those storyboards, okay, that, that's, that stuff is actually unnecessary. We don't need to worry about that. It doesn't tell the story. Let's get rid of those shots, but let's prioritize those shots. And I can take those storyboard frames and I basically do a cut and paste over the amount of days and just work out a sensible kind of shooting order in terms of um, uh, equipment that we've got, camera equipment, allocating. <coughs> what goes where. So that, that, that's the basic process mm -hmm. of it. I mean, that Culloden sequence is quite interesting because it, it started much bigger. It started as a, as a kind of almost like an objective view of the battle. And then what we, what we did in terms of our capacity, we, it was a creative decision to make it much more about Jamie <coughs> and Jamie's experience of the battle and make it, if you like, much more in his head. So we, it, and, and I think if you know the sequence, that becomes that way. And then that puts, I think, if I may, with Ali, for example, in terms of the lighting on that, there were distinctive lighting stages within it. Uh, and I just wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and how we achieved that. Well, we, um, Brendan, who's the director of that, um, decided he wanted to do a, the, the scene that you see Jamie and uh, Jack fighting at the end, to, virtually to the death. He wanted to, the, the, the heather was lit, so we wanted to um, shoot that at near, as near sunset as possible and I would work with Nick and try and say would like to shoot that key element at a certain time and sometimes you can, uh, you can hit those targets and sometimes you don't and sometimes the weather doesn't play so it's, it's kind of sometimes you have to make changes on the day we were, we were actually very lucky we, we hit a period where we got a fantastic sky in the background 
which we, we, we lit, but we, we had to sort of amend the lighting as the sun went down and reduce the lighting so it kind of balanced out. But it's that kind of thing and, and uh, uh, arranging the equipment that we used for that because we had steady cams, which are you know, a way of putting the camera and holding it smoothly, and cranes, and all these sort of things have to be brought in and taken out and um, you know, used in the most efficient way. But um, I think that the filming of that actually, I think it was about five days, six days for the main, and the main battle, and then second unit had another three or four days on top of that to film it. Good, thank you. And then, I mean, I know one thing, I mean, Stuart, would you, uh, there was, in that battle sequence, there was a whole pile of bodies, which, which I mean, do you want to talk to that a little bit about how we, how that came up and how we kind of dealt with that aspect of it? After the storyboarding, we had to devise a plan to, to make, make these little clusters of piles of bodies and be able to lay in real people and have fake people, for want of a better phrase, <laughs> and, and make it very portable so that we could, in a short space of time and geographically, in a short space, be able to shift things about and make things look different and move fires and move the cannons we had made and move, move piles of bodies and, and just try and make the same place look different over and over again, I think, mm -hmm. yeah. was key for us. So. And then, Annie, for, for this kind of sequence, what are the challenges to make up? Just keeping everything on and, the, and telling the same story with blood and dirt and keeping the levels, telling the story and not having too much blood in one bit and not enough in the other so that it distracts you from the story. Nothing to distract you from what's happening. It should all look smooth. You should never question the level of blood or the level of dirt. So just, just trying to keep it following the story because yeah. we don't necessarily shoot in order. So... Lots of pictures, lots of taking off and putting on as quick as we can. Huge number of additional makeup artists. Huge number of additional like makeup yeah. artists, Michael. And everybody yeah. is wigged, so we'll, we'll bring in two yeah. or three hundred wigs, and everybody's got a wig on, and, and it's a huge amount of labour yeah. to put that on and make it look good and real. And as you say, keep them on. We to were keep doing them on and then turn them around and, to yeah. be ready for the next day. It's, it's a, a big job. Yeah. yeah, I mean, everybody on makeup, everybody, sorry, everybody on the screen in Outlander. Is fitted with by, by both costume and makeup before they go on screen. So it is a, in that sense, a big process. So any questions now? Any other thoughts? Yes. Hey, how long did it take you to edit the battle scene? Uh, well, the, our, our editing goes through two stages on Outlander. We we do what we do. We call a director's cut, um, where directors are with us up in up in our base in Cumbernauld. And they work usually for about five, five days, six days per episode, right? Um, but, and, and that editing process is, is going on concurrently while we're shooting. And then the, once the editors have done their cut, the material goes off to our post-production facility in, in, in California, in LA, where then they're, they're, there's another layer of editing which ends up as the producer's cut, the executive producer's cut. So it is a two-stage process and actually... And then there, if there are visual effects enhancement, that, that then goes on beyond that. So we're talking, you know, and music going on and then any dubbing, we're talking about a three or four month period. Not necessarily always consistently on it, but, but that's, that's the kind of process we go through. Was this scene a much bigger scene at the beginning? It was reshaped, but I think the general process was there. Yeah. Uh, 
I think we should... I, I, I seem to remember revisiting... Do you remember the rabbit sequence which kind of haunted us? <laughs> Where Jamie's lying on the body pile and the snow drifts down and lands on his face uh, and he sees this little rabbit and then he has this vision of Claire. And I seem to remember us reshooting that at least twice <laughs> in the yeah, studio but, with a pile but, of bodies. But we pretty much shot what was in the final draft of the script. I mean, as David said, the original draft was a much bigger event. But we, 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 we shot pretty much what was in... The final draft, and that's yeah. pretty much what ended it up is, on it the is screen. Pretty much what it so there, there wasn't yeah. much chaff, you know. It, we, it was pretty efficient. Yeah. By the time we come to shoot it, exactly, it was, a, it was a bit of a process to get to what exactly we were doing, but we got there. Yeah, and that's look, that's always the game we're in. We're trying to we're trying to hone it down, prep it, prep it, prep it, uh, so that we shoot most efficiently. You know, and that's that's the game. You know, in terms of that. It was, it was this, we started the series with, with Culloden as well. We I did, remember yeah. David saying it was going to be like day one of, of that series shoot, which was a fairly big push to get that thing up and running. But it's good to get these big sequences out of the way. So any other questions on, on that? Go on, sorry, yes. Just a question, I thought, how powerful do you actually work with Diana, um, the writer, to kind of ensure the consistency of trans, you know, from the book to the screen? Diana, it, it was, we were lucky to have Diana over for a little while. She was over on two for one, for, for about one episode's filming. Uh, Diana always sees the script, so she gives input to it. But I think there's a, there's a clear understanding that the book is one thing and the, sh the TV show is another. And, and that's the way it inevitably is. And we have to work with the script and, you know, the book's become, it's a different part of the story, if you like. Transition from the book to screen is excellent, and you know the showcase of of Scotland as well. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think people that have read the books and are quite are fans of the book are quite happy the way it has been um, trans, you know, transferred. So thank goodness. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hi, I'm um, Jacqueline from Holland, and I've got two questions. And the first question is: um, Do the actors have any influence on the script? And the second question is. What happens, because you planned, I heard you really plan uh, the days, what happens if a head actor gets sick? What do you do? Is that completely, <laughs> you work there with doubles, or what do you do? Okay, let me, I'll ask the first one, and then Michael can ask the, the second one. Look, actors are, especially our long-term actors, our, our core group of actors, are very important to us, and I think that process of consultation does go on. Uh, you know, the, 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 we always will show early, as early as we can do, the script to our principal cast, but really only, you know, and, and, and see what their feedback is. And then that, the process is working together to try and get there on the line. But, but of course, you know, the writers are also the ones who are the custodians of the story and the ones who write the script. So there's a balance there, uh, and I think that's about as best I can do on that question. So, Michael, in terms of what happens if... Yeah, I mean, we, we, have, we often uh, have a number of different scheduling scenarios in play at the same time because of, more so because of weather. Uh, we're always, we'll have sets ready uh, and we're prepared that we're going out in the elements in Scotland. We need to have something that we can pull up and be ready for. So we build flexibility into the booking of actors uh, and we build flexibility into when sets are going to be ready. Uh, and we have things on standby. So generally when someone gets sick or, or something happens that, that we weren't expecting, we look to the schedule and we, we have to work out what we can do, who's available, what actors have we got, what sets have we got, 
uh, what can we bring forward that's that's least damaging, you know. Uh, ideally, you you know, you don't find out often when that happens uh, until the morning that you're going to get up and running, you're going to get shooting, so you want to be in the same place and you want to see what scenes are also happening in that location that you've got the players for, yeah. Okay, thank you. So, Nina, do you want to tell us a little bit about the, the, the process of putting those costumes together and how that might work in terms of where they come from, what the process is, any inspirations, anything you want to do, a little riff on the costume on that side of it? Um, okay, so I, well, I think the first part of the design for that was um, looking at the original um, dance that happens around the stones. From season one? The, yeah, the from, season, from season, one. season one. So we wanted to echo the lightness um, and the flowing sort of nature of the fabrics, um, also in the voodoo ceremony, but it was a very different dance. So it was very sort of jolty as opposed to, you know, very floaty. So, um, yeah, we just, we just used um, lots of layers and things in their costumes, looking at lots of references of uh, voodoo ceremonies in Haiti and that region of the world, um, who they all do wear quite a lot of white in their ceremonies anyway, so that linked quite well. Um, and then, yeah, just trying to maximise the movement. We worked with the choreographer quite a bit so that we could look at the movements they were trying to do and get the maximum sort of movement from the costumes and using all the masks and the swinging of their heads. So we decided that the, 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 um, the, the sort of excess fabric that would create the floatiness was coming from their heads so that that... Um, and it was like their turbans had been unravelled. So it made sense. It wasn't just something abstract that they put on their heads. It was, you know, their, their turbans that had come down and they had little skulls and things. I don't know if you really noticed it, but there's skulls and things that were hidden underneath the turbans, um, along with the masks and everything that um, they wore. So these, the people that were there at the ceremony were supposed to have been the, um, the slaves that were, that were used by, uh, on the plantation. Um, sort of around, around Galus's house. So, it, so they're basically the same people. And then the only colour we used was red. Um, and the kind of, well, there was a couple of other little colours as well, but we just used red as well, so that obviously the blood of the chicken and everything was all referenced. And um, yeah, that's Good, all. Thank you. Any, any questions on that sequence? Um, yeah, there were some quite elaborate masks that were made there and, and that sort, of that sort of crocodile head and things. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how the sort of fabrication of that was done. That seemed like quite a sort of complex yeah, there was Yeah, there were three different places. Um, we used a company in London, um, Animated Extras. They made, the, they made the first version of the crocodile head. Um, when we got it to South Africa, it wasn't exactly... Things, you know, things happen, and then when we got it there and working with the actors and in the environment, it wasn't quite what we anticipated it to be. So then we had to sort of hack it apart and actually start um, and kind of repaint it and make it slightly more gory in the environment. So uh, there was, the crocodile head was made there, and then uh, they made some of the masks there as well, and then we made some of the masks in our craft department. So as well as the costume... Um, the costume department that makes the costumes, then we also have, um, there's always like lots of craftspeople involved and a breakdown department that does all the aging and 
all of the painting techniques on everything as well. So uh, it was actually the breakdown department that made a lot of those masks um, for that. And we wanted to have, yeah, these lots of those double-headed ones because of the way we knew the way that it was going to be shot um, with everybody facing inwards towards the fire. So we wanted to create um, masks that had faces on the back of the head as well as the front of the head. So you get quite an eerie... Um, it's just quite an eerie sense when you see the back of somebody, but then there's a face on the back of them, and the way they move is completely different. So um, it all just looks a little bit weird without really understanding why it looks so odd. And what you don't quite know what's the front of somebody and what's the back, and when they're all sort of spinning around. So that's why we chose to do... And some masks on the top of the head as well. So when people bend forward, it, it's it's kind of like a creature or something as opposed to a person. So that's why we created our own masks that specifically did that. Um, how did you get everything to South Africa? Well, essentially, essentially, we fly it. We put it, it's a combination of putting it in containers and, and the, the other side of it is, is flying it there. It is a massive logistical operation to do that. I think you know, one of the decisions we made quite early on with, with South Africa, that we, were only, we, we wanted to take our key individuals, our key people in terms of all the various departments in here, but we also wanted to use and rely on a lot of South African skills and a South African labour. So there was a shift in terms of the way the production was put together. Uh, and again, we're in planning, we were planning it a year ahead in order to, to make South Africa work. One of the things that you hear um, in Scotland is how Outlander has been a, a significant factor and kind of boom in the Scottish industry, um, especially the, it's been trickling down in the independent sector, but I just wanted to see what your thoughts were on that, whether this is something that you hear yourself. Yeah, no, no, I mean, it's definitely kind of changed the game here. Uh, Scotland's sort of specialised in low to mid-budget films uh, and, and kind of BBC ITV level drama traditionally, and, and this level of drama is, is a completely different thing. It's kind of on the scale of, we often say we're making a feature film every week, you know, we're kind of working at a much higher level and the crew's much bigger. Your average crew on a Scottish television drama might be between 60 and 100 people. Outlander has a basic footprint of around 250 people, core crew. Uh, and then when we're doing big things like Culloden, on some days we're catering for four or 500 people on a shoot day like that. So we're bringing in huge amounts of people. Uh, and for us, uh, on season one, the skill base up here, it, it didn't really exist, uh, particularly in, in sort of costume workshop. We had to bring a lot of people in, we had to bring a lot of skills in in the first season, but we've done a fantastic job of training up. Uh, and the costume department, particularly in the construction department, have gone out and found people from the colleges locally and brought them in at low levels. And, and over the course of the five years we've been doing the show, people have earned their stripes, worked their way up, and uh, yeah, we have, a, we have a kind of functioning crew base now capable of turning out, uh, well, you can see it, first-class costumes and sets. Uh, I think particularly in, in, in Gary's realm, uh, the construction department just do incredible work, and every time these guys turn out a new set, we walk onto it as well and just go, geez, you know, they're, they're, everybody that works on those sets is incredibly proud of the work they do. Uh, and it's been fantastic to have a facility like Ward Park where they can go in and, and do that kind of work every day. Right. I think that it has been a starting point going forward, so I think you should be immensely proud because it's the, the benefits, the, the rewards are definitely there. Good, thank you. And we hope they go on for yeah. many years yet. Yeah. Okay.
Okay, so talking about design, let's go and show the design clip and then we can talk to Gary a little bit about that. Okay? The exterior is in Glasgow and the interior is in Cumbernauld. Okay? But we're in Boston. So, Gary, do you want to talk about that a little bit about how we reconcile all those things together and how sure. we bring those in, inspiration for it, sure. and how that works? Okay, we start with an outline usually because we're prepping this stuff way in advance. Usually we, costumes department, art department, set deck, start halfway through each season to start to prep the big sets for the following year. So we start with this outline, then we start with sketches that I'll do, and then we hand them to the set designers, and we draft up uh, different sets, then we make rough models of it, and then we show it to Ron or Matt and everybody else, and everybody agrees on the design, then we move forward and we start building. We have a huge group. I have to admit, we have, I don't know, between art department set deck, plaster department, scenic and construction, well over 100, I'm sure. And at times it, it goes up and down because the, you know, that's the way it works. But I have to say, most of the crew is all Scotland then, or UK, but mostly Scotland. And I have to say they're amazing, amazing artisans for actually all the departments. People are really, really into this show and I think it shows that everybody wants it to be amazingly beautiful and, and it is and the details are really all thought out and worked out and we want you to, to love the show. So then we build it, we see artists come in, we do many, many samples, then we pick the colors, and then the furniture is being brought in by Stuart and his crew. Uh, they're like elves. Tons of stuff, tons of stuff is made, and I can't even tell you how many different things. We build furniture, we build tons of lighting, uh, all braziers and all kinds of uh, period lighting for all the different sets from prisons to taverns to, you know, there's just tons and tons of sets. Most of the stuff is built because it's easier to build it and own it and we use it over and over and over and things get modified, sets get modified, one set will get reused. I mean, how do I explain that? People think, oh, you say it gets reused and you just repaint it. No, that's not how it works. What, like for instance, the Paris apartment was this humongous set and had a big courtyard that was sunken so that we could look through the windows and see down and see carriages come in. The following year, it had to turn, that stage was our biggest stage and we needed a big set for the Boston apartment. So then we took that court, changed all the details, changed the balconies and all the moldings, turned it to brick and used that as a Boston court to look through the windows on that set. The walls, most of the walls got taken away from Paris, the few that stayed. We ripped the moldings at the French foo-foo moldings off and turn it into an American Boston apartment. Uh, as a designer, the, this is the fun part for all of us. So for Stuart and I, to build the sets is the, it's the, it's why we're here. It's why we do it. Uh, I actually love seeing the models and then to see the progression of it going from a model, or first from a sketch, then a model, and then to see the set go up. That's the most exciting part for me. And to be honest, I love it when the different actors and people in the show come in and most of the time they love it, and that's, and that's what makes it fun. Any design-related questions? Go for it. Talking about amazingly beautiful, um, I think one of the nicest um, scenes I can remember was the star chamber in the Dome in Paris, and it's absolutely stunning, and how long does it take even to think that, that all up and then take it from, you know, from the start to finish? The hard part of that was to convince Ron to let us do it. Um, <laughs> 
we did a sketch, and even Nikki, who is our supervising art director, who is amazing, she works her butt off, and she's, the, as we say, the glue that holds all of our departments together. She's amazing. I did a sketch and said, I want to have a dome, and I want light shafts coming through as Claire walks in, and, and she's looking at it, and she goes, well, I like it, but I just, I don't, I don't know. It's kind of crazy. They're never going to go for it. We showed it to Ron. We built a model. Actually, we built two models and showed the models of Ron. He's standing there, and, and I had all these different diagrams of the shafts of light coming onto Claire and the model. We, had a, we actually had a dome built on the yeah. thing. And Ron goes, explain it to me again. And I said, well, <laughs> she's going to walk through in the gowns. It's going to be amazing. And the shafts of light, the DP is going to you know, light it. It's going to like Jesus light coming down. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> and he goes, all right, build it. So then we um, talked to construction coordinators and the uh, plaster department. And I didn't know exactly how we're going to do the dome, the dome itself. But the plaster department was so excited. They're amazing. They were jumping up and down. They wanted to cast it in plaster. And the construction coordinator at first, Danny, who is amazing, said, um, I don't know. I don't know about this. But anyway, he, uh, Alex, the plaster man, convinced him that we would cast each panel like pieces of a pie. So they built a form and uh, cast each piece. Then they put them together. And then the whole thing is hoisted up on metal frames. And it's lowered onto the set. And then, then we. A bunch of us crawled up and put postums all the way on the outside of where we wanted different size holes so the shafts of light to come through. And uh, it sounds crazy, but it, it worked and it was actually very exciting to, to work on. And that is one of my favorite sets also. Thank you. Thank you. It was Thank stunning. You. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Good. You mentioned transformative kind of spaces. And obviously, you transformed uh, Master Raymond's Apothecary into the print shop and you put over the fantastic kind of walkway. But I was interested in kind of how you transform spaces when it's a historic site. Um, I bumped into you once at Midhope and you, <laughs> I, I, you were talking about rebuilding a wall. And I, it's just kind of how you don't obviously damage the site and kind of keep the integrity of all of the kind of area because I can imagine the locations department probably would cry oh, if yeah. something went More wrong. More than cry. <laughs> yeah. So we go to locations and they're all amazing 17th, 18th century places, estates and old homes or battlefields and, and you know, it's historical. So of course we have to respect uh, these monuments and protect them. So we, anything we bring in has to, you know, we have to build things around anything to protect the corners and stuff like that. We bring in tons of dressing and tons of greens. Greens is like the unsung heroes of our department. You kind of, you watch the show and you see the beautiful scenery, but you have no idea the amount of weeks of work that people are doing covering up ruts in a road that that road can't be in a shot or building different walls of stone where there weren't or covering stones walls that we don't need because we're in America and we don't want stone walls or just making Lollybrook look alive because right now you know as you have seen it it's you know it's kind of disrepair and then when we come we kind of fluff it all up and bring in tons of yeah. set dressing and animals and people in beautiful costumes and they light it and, and that creates the magic how do you go about finding particular locations uh, i mean we we have a locations department of what it seems to grow about 12 or 13 people uh, 22 at one point because <laughs> uh, it's not just about finding it's <coughs> about servicing i mean as soon as uh, construction department want to go on site, we need to have a locations person in there. But I mean, we have location scouts whose job is just to look for locations. And the way it usually works is Gary and myself will get together with location scouts based on the scripts and, and give them a brief about what, what they're looking for. 
Uh, and this season, what's interesting is in, in previous seasons, we've been able to use the built environment of Scotland. As Gary said, we can see dry stone walls. We can use that wealth of history and you know, what makes Scotland so fabulous to work on in terms of this period is we can we, we constantly be able to travel across the country using it. This season, we're in a different world. We, we're using Scotland, but at the same time, we're hiding it because we are now in North America. So it's a bit more of a tricky challenge for us, um, but the, it, it is a process of gain, as Nick said earlier, it's always working from the script. It's always working from the script and then seeing what we need and, and going from that point. And, you know, we'll spend days in the, in, in the van together <laughs> going out and looking, looking at locations that have, have, the location scouts have indicated for us. So it's a process, it's part of the process, and it's about, as Gary said, that need to always be prep, always prep, always advance. I mean, we're always looking at not the episode or the episodes that we're shooting at the moment. We're looking at three or four episodes in advance to try and make sure we get there in time and make those selections. Hello, I'm very interested in the objects, the antique objects and weapons and everything like that. And I know you mentioned the crafting department, but um, my question is kind of how that relates to the set decoration. Do you have an idea for the objects you want to appear in a room and then you develop those by hand? Or do you go out and find things that would fit the feeling and then kind of fill in the blanks of the room? We, it all starts with tons and tons of research at the beginning of every season. Um, and we try and get in the set deck department and in the art department, we get our head into the environment of what we're trying to recreate. And then very early on, we have to establish what is going to be readily available, which to David's point earlier, for this current season we're filming is not much. So it means that we have to front load the making and the manufacturing of furniture and different small hand props. And maybe if something is a key prop which pops up in the script, then we discuss it very early and talk to Gary about how we want it to look. And, and we, have, we have an amazing skill base now, as Michael said, within the production. And um, more and more we're producing stuff because it, it's infinitely useful for me to keep going on and, ha still, and having a stock of furniture, rugs, carpets, sconces, braziers. We've got some carts that keep recurring back and forward, although we change the dressing. It means that we, we can use the same thing but not overly use it in its, in its first state, but we change things quite a lot and, and we get a lot of control over the colour palette that way when we manufacture things. So it means that we can keep it looking outlander without having to hire too much. And I mean, we're, we're now looking at about 30,000 square foot of, of prop space is what we have now in Outlander in terms of acquiring, making, purchasing various props over the four seasons now. It, it's an enormous research. And similarly, I think we're now at about 15,000 items of costumes in terms of the volume that we've created. But I mean, specifically, Stuart, in terms of the interesting for, I, I know we talked about the print shop a little bit earlier, mentioned talking about the print shop going from, going from the apothecary. In that print shop, in terms of the degree of specialization that we go to here, it's worth just talking about the ingredients of the print shop, notably actually the printers themselves, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, I mean, we, we knew at the very beginning of, of that season that we were going to have to recreate this print shop interior. So we started putting feelers out to find out what was available. And there, there is nothing, there, there were no functioning common presses of that period, which would allow us to, to take them out of a museum. 
So we had to make the decision early on to, to manufacture two. And then we decided that it was critical for us that, to give the, the actors more freedom and, and be able to use them better that they actually worked. So we actually built two common press that were appropriate for the period and dressed them into the set. And, and you, could, you could print from them, an experienced printer of that time could print from them, and we did print from them. We, we, we made plates, we made, we made the minutiae of that set. There was nothing available to hire. We made the little bits of print, little bits of type, little tools, all the hand-pressed paper. We manufactured every single little thing in there. And then we burnt it. And then we burnt it. <laughs> yeah. What happens to the beautiful objects like that that you make and then never can use again? Will you open an Outlander museum someday? Uh, as I say, at the moment they're stored, and, and, and you know, that's when, when the show comes to an end, and it will do at some point, uh, then there will be a decision made then. I'm sure there'll be an enormous fire sale at some point. You know. So watch out for that if one. If we've not burned it. Yep. If we've not burned it all. If we've not burned it all by then, exactly. Okay, any other questions on design? I mean, one, one thing I'd like to ask, if I may, if, with Ali, in terms of when we look at that, that interior of the apartment, of Frank and Claire's apartment, how, how's that sort of reconciled between the interior and the exterior? And, and how, do you, how do you get that sense of, of realism between walking from a street in Glasgow into that set, which is on a stage? Do, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, one of the decisions we made, I think, early on was to... Have a, we wanted to see in the in the I think season one and two, all the glass was quite you couldn't really see through it. So looking out through windows wasn't on sets wasn't really an issue of what you saw, but in in sort of 1960s Boston you would clearly see out the window. So we made the decision to to um, photograph a backdrop which we which we had out there and I think it worked pretty well. So. Um, uh, I think it was a German company that actually... I think, yeah, I mean, that, when, when you say a backdrop, we're talking about a piece of cloth which is it's, 80 foot long? Yeah, it's, ma it's absolutely massive, yeah. And uh, it's 120 foot long by 40 foot high. Yeah. yeah? Something yes. like that. And it, and it had to... Um, you know, we, 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 it's very well designed so you can light it and it has no reflection of it, but it, so you can put you know, either a daylight setting on it or a night setting in it. And, it, and it, it worked well for those. Mm -hmm. um, we also obviously shot some exteriors, which we had to... I think we shot the exteriors the wrong way around. In other words, we, we had to shoot... We shot the interiors first, so we didn't really know what we were going to get when we shot the exteriors, but we, we were... We seemed to be quite lucky on Outlander um, in, you know, that we get the weather we need quite a lot of the time. Um, but we... So we decided that... Um, that the, the, the mood of what was going on in, in the scenes was how we would light, light, the, um, light the interiors. And, you know, I would discuss with Gary would um, have a mo the, these amazing models. That they make models for every single part of, the, of all the sets. And so we would discuss the, the models with Gary, Nikki, and say where we would want the lighting. And it's, all, it's a sort of process that takes several weeks to, to um, you know, go through. Um, and I think that set particularly, you know, was, was from, me, from my point of view, was very easy to light. It was, you know, it, it was, you know, it's, it's, it was a real pleasure. I mean, that, for me, what, what's in front of the camera is what I have to, to, to deal with. And always with Gary's stuff and everybody else's, it's, it's very easy to do because it always looks amazing. The, you know, the prison sets in, um, in season three, 
you know, they, they just, you felt like you were in a prison. It was, you, you could, you know, you could walk 360 degrees around it and it would, you know, it felt like a real place and all the sets feel, feel real, you know, they, you can, to touch and everything. It's, and none of them are too small, are they? Usually when you go in, you have to sort of um, ask for some lighting space and it eventually comes for... But no, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, no. good. Look, well, just what we're going to do now, we'll have one more clip because we're, we're not long on time now. We'll have, let's, let's actually just, let's have the makeup clip up, please. And let's have a look at a little bit of another aspect of the work we do that, that it really is in Annie's realm. So let's just, show, what I'd like to do is ask Annie to talk a little bit about the look of Tompkinson, because he did change. I mean, the first time we, saw, we, we see Tompkinson, he's, he's actually in Scotland, and then he's down in South Africa for that, that part of it. So Annie, do you want to talk about how that look comes together and the, the change within, within Tompkinson's look? A little bit. Um, well, for something like a burn, we send the actor to Animated Extras again to have his face cast and they will model up on that face cast the burn and then sandwich it between a negative and a positive and get us a silicon piece. For Tompkins, we needed, I think, maybe six silicon pieces for over the, the shooting that we have to do, so we calculate how many we need, plus maybe a couple for accidents in case they don't go on well or things get cancelled or stuff. Um, they come blank, so we paint them on the face after they're stuck on. Um, he also was sent to Eyeworks, where they measure his eye to make a lens to give that milky eye, because the eye got damaged as well. Um, and that's a fairly lengthy process. He goes twice, they paint it up. We send pictures of what we want, and they, they have technicians who paint the lenses. And for that, we need an optician on site when we're filming all the time in case something happens with the lens. With this lens, it could only be in for three hours before his eye just was deprived of oxygen because it's such a thick, all-covering lens. So I can see people getting a bit queasy <laughs> at the thought of it. He was very good, though. And then it would come out and he'd get eye drops and then it would go in again. Um, but yes, it was a long process, probably just under two hours to get Tompkins ready with a wig. This piece has to be glued on everywhere. You can't just tack on here and there and then paint it because it will move separately from the face. So the whole thing has to be glued with medical glue to his face and then painted on. Talking about um, like the scars on his face, Jamie obviously had loads of scars on yes. his back. How did you go about that? Was that a long pro progress as well? And, you know. It's got quicker, just through the fact that we've had to do it again and again and again. And we've understood when it's gone wrong the first time that we need to start. The back's in two pieces, two sections. We need to adhere the, the middle of both sections and then sit them up. Because if it's, as we did in the beginning, if it's all glued when he's lying down and he sits up the whole thing was a challenge, and you've just got to film, you've got to go with it. You can't say, oh, we've made a mistake, we're gonna to have to spend an hour taking it off and stick it on again in a different way. Um, so we put him into one of those orthopedic type city chairs for the end of the back, and then we glue it all around the sides and paint that up. So he also gets the wig put on within that time and a bit of makeup bit of facial scarring, scars on his hands. So that's all done in two hours, 20 minutes, which mm -hmm. is very good, actually. 
And I mean, it, and, and it goes all the way back to season one in terms of the design process, doesn't it, as well? And, and that the process of you know, what's happened to Jamie, how many lashes do he have, what do we want, not just in terms of what the reality would be, but also what we want from it. I think it's a, it's a combination of balancing the reality with, with, the creative, with the creative needs and what we want for the show. And so, and you know, going on with the back, you know, that two and a half hour makeup or whatever, is the first question that, we, that will come out of the assistant director's question, uh, 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 mouth I would suggest, Nick, is when there is a scene involving intimacy between Jamie and Claire, the first question is, will we see the back? <laughs> because it affects the scheduling, it affects Annie, it affects everybody, it affects costumes, because if we put a shirt on his back and it takes it off in action, that impacts the time, and he might need to go back into makeup and get it done. So you're getting an idea of the process and, uh, and the kind of the complexities of the show we've got. So any last questions? Unfortunately, I think we're coming to an end. In the third season, uh, Jamie and Claire, they're 20 years older. Um, what do you have to do to make them look older? What sort of, what do you think about the, the makeup? What do you have to do? Um, we had to walk a fine line because you don't want to make people look too unattractive. <laughs> so we went for, they both have grey in their hair. And certainly in Claire's 60s wig, it, it looked lovely. It was sort of based on Mrs. Robinson. So it was the grey streak, which is a lovely look. Um, we didn't particularly age our face because the 60s makeup did it for us. It's such a, a, a strong makeup and it was so different to what we'd seen her in before. With Jamie, he has very, very fine grey in his temples and he has painted. There's no prosthetics, it's just painted lines um, and highlight and shade, very subtle. Um, and that's the path we took. We could have gone down a path where they have prosthetics, you know, overhanging eyes, eye bags. It's, once again, it's a lengthy process. It would have taken hours in the morning and nobody, our schedule doesn't have time for that kind of thing. So it had to be a subtle aging. And I think it works. Yeah, I think, I look at, and I think, you know, they're, they're, it's interesting now, you get an idea of well, the balances that we're all having to take in terms of the way we make decisions. It's, we're balancing many different things. We're balancing the schedule. We're balancing the look. We're balancing the reality of it. We're balancing the interests of the studio, the network. But going into the aging process, part of that process is what the actors do, how they help us. You know, for example, with Jamie, there's introduction of a pair of glasses just to help that process. And I think there's, and also within the story, there's children start to grow up. And so we can see that process all aiding, just helping to hint to, the, to, hint to that aging process. And in terms of what their, if you like, what their palette is in terms of what their actions are, how they look at the world, all those things help that aging process without actually you know, endangering the, the or, or if you like, putting at risk the reality of the way they look over what is you know, 160 days of shooting and you know, each season 13 hours of TV. It's got to have an integrity to it. And so we're looking at that at the same time. Um, so I know you said earlier that you've taken trainees on and you've seen them sort of come up through the ranks and things. Is that something that you're planning to do in each of the productions, um, you know, every time you do a new series, take on 
sort of trainees for the local area? Yeah, very much so. I mean, we, we very strongly believe that Outlander training is a real asset to the business. We're proud of it. It is one of the biggest schemes in Britain, let alone Scotland. And we, we think it's an integral part of the show. We need them. And we see it as a remit and we see it as a duty to do that. And so we will keep doing it. We do it with, with incorporation with various bodies like Credit Scotland and, and, and various and skill set. And we put in an awful lot of money and resources into ourselves. But our supervisors and our heads of department, they also spend time making sure that training happens. And it's one of the things we're proud of when we see people who are trainees in season one now taking real strong positions and, and lead positions in season four. It's it's great thing. It's about what the legacy of the show that we believe in. Okay. All right. Thank you very much indeed. Sorry we couldn't go on for longer. Uh, and uh, season four is out some point later. <laughs> some point. Oh, I wouldn't. I, I, I couldn't do that. It's going to be great. All right. Anyway, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs>